Claudine Hemingway is a descendant of famed writer Ernest Hemingway. We bumped into each other at a party and decided to team up and dive deep into French history, but with a twist, by bringing a spotlight to those lesser-known creatives in France. This is History with a Hemingway. So I'm back with Claudine Hemingway, and we're continuing part two of Violette. We left off with her trying to murder her parents. Uh, Dad sadly did pass away. So let's find out what happens next. Yeah, so we left her, and it was uh, August 23rd, 1933. She had successfully managed to kill her father, almost kill her mother, turned, came back on. You know, th- she thought she was a pretty smart little cookie. Um, and she turned the gas on thinking she'd create this, you know, scene of a double suicide. Um, but again, that lovely neighbor down the hall saved the, saved the mother's life this time. So, but now, so the father has died. Her mother is still alive. Her mother was taken to the hospital. Um, the police commissioner, Goudet, um, came to the crime scene. And the moment he got there, he discovered, um, that something just was off. They started looking into the past of, you know, the daughter, Violette, and quickly thought this is definitely she's suspect number one. Her mother was taken to the hospital. As soon as she, as she basically was able to come to and to speak that same, later that same day, the police took Violet to go visit her, um, realizing her mother was about to spill the entire story. She fled the hospital. Um, the story was all anyone in Paris at that time was talking about. And just like the Henri Landru case that we talked about a few weeks ago, it was on the front page of every single paper in France. Um, and this is afterwards. So, you know, Landru happened during World War One. This is now the 1930s. Um, they started calling her the Black Angel or the monster in a petticoat. <laughs> I love <laughs> Which, well, you know, most people probably don't. Nowadays, people, you know, a lot of people probably don't know what a petticoat is. Um, but for five days, she outran the law, spending money as fast as she could, even dating a few men who she hoped would take care of her. Um, but that was her, that would be her mistake. Cause one of the men she went, was supposed to have a date with recognized her from her photo in the newspaper and called the police. So he was supposed to meet her at a cafe. You know, she's sitting there holding, you know, the red carnation. So, you know, who she is, (laughs) I made that part up. (laughs) <laughs> but he, but she went there, he went there and he saw her from afar and thought that's the girl in the paper and called the police on August 24th. An autopsy was performed on her father by Dr. Charles Paul and discovered that he had a large amount of salmonella in his system, which resulted in his death. But his fall the month before that landed him in the hospital probably weakened his system. So maybe if he hadn't had that fall, he would have been able to, you know, fight through um, the effects of what she had done to him. Mm-hmm. Um, on the 28th, four days later, in the 7th, she was arrested and charged with intentional homicide and taken to the Quai d'Orfaire, which is on the Ile de la Cité. Um, under interrogation, the commissioner, commissioner Marcel Guillaume, who was also involved in the Henri Landru case, asked where she got all this money to fund this newfound um, lavish lifestyle that she had. Um, Violette said that it was from a gentleman named Monsieur Papin who was buying her whatever she wanted and giving her 3,000 francs a month. 
but of course, Monsieur Papin never existed. Um, she broke down in tears and said that her mother was away so often and her father had been raping her for six years. Oh, um, some days even took her to work with him and raped her in a small cabin near the tracks and threatened to kill her if she ever told her mother. What a psycho. Yeah. So realizing that her own daughter tried to kill her and successfully killed her husband um, and held little to no remorse at all, Germaine ended up, gave the police everything they could have ever wanted. As she should. I mean, that's terrifying. Yeah. Um, After the Landrieu case, the public was obsessed, much like today, with every small detail they could possibly get. They crowded on the street um, below the Rue de Madagascar address that was the scene of the crime. They lined up outside the police station hoping just to see her. Um, Henri Jarreau was a powerful criminal attorney that was uh, that had defended other criminals, um, albeit not su- very successfully, um, used the press to his advantage. Uh, Violette was claiming that it was an act of self-defense after years of physical abuse by her father. Although the press would not use the term rape or incest, the public was able to figure it out on their own. Um, although we, it was not true. Um, influential supporters came to her, her defense, including, including Marcel Amy, who is the gentleman that if you remember when we did a live walk, I think maybe our first or second ever live walk. In Montmartre, in your, in not far from you, the yeah. man who walks through uh, the wall. Yeah, yeah. The author's, that's the author, Marcel Emmy. Oh. Um, he defended her in the press. Her lo- lawyers also mounted a defense that other men, including her boyfriend, Jean Dabin, took advantage of her and forced her to steal for him. All, after all, how could a teenager kill her own parents? When I was doing research for her to the, for this story, I found, um, this British podcast that did an episode about this and the beginning of it. And this, at this point, I'd already done all, you know, I'd already read everything and found out all of the information about her. And this podcast, uh, basically starts out with kind of a disclaimer and about, you know, the, the, it's going to be talking about rape and incest. And then it go. they went on and on. These two girls went on and on about how, you know, they didn't listen to her. They didn't believe her. But you're going to find out that there was no truth behind any of that. Yeah. Um, and because of the syphilis. Yeah. If she had syphilis, she had syphilis. If he did this, her father would have had syphilis. And he was tested and he never had it. That's where her whole plan fell through. So it is kind of like, it is definitely, of course, if somebody says that this happened, you definitely want to, of course, take it seriously. Um, but it is, you know, back then it's interesting that I'm listening to a podcast recorded in like 2022 saying these people are like, oh, but she said this, which is the same as it happened in the story that their people, her attorney was pushing that out there, even though it was all a lie and all these people were gump- jumping to her defense yeah. and they were using that, you know, to, to change the narrative. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, if it's, but you know, we know that this, it did not happen um, because of the syphilis, because if it did, he would have had syphilis um, on August 31st, uh, Benoit in the presence of his wife and, and uh, father and everybody was buried in the town that he grew up in. The entire town was there um, and muttered in disbelief. But the one the person that wasn't there, of course, was his daughter um, back in Paris. Her stories went on and on and on. She started changing her story. She started 
adding things to the story. Nothing was ever staying, you know, the, the same. Every time she told it, it was different. Um, she describes getting suggestive fo- photos her father had hidden um, that he would look at and even um, the cloth that he used as a contraceptive. Wow. Um, but the uh, full searches were held and nothing was ever record- recovered to, to back up her story. In fact, they could never even find this little hut, this little thing that was near the tracks. Um, she was taken to the uh, Petit Ruka prison, um, she, which is really close to where Père Lachaise is now. Nothing remains of it. Uh, she stood by her tail and told everyone that would listen. The first part of the case went to court in the start of October, and her mother got her very own lawyer and mounted the case against her. Every seat was filled, and the day Jean Le- Jean Devin walked in, every seat, uh, everyone sat a little bit taller to hear him recount his tale of his relationship. Um, looking at, down at his hand, um, Jean noticed a ring on his finger, and the court stopped as Jean screamed that the ring belonged to her husband. Asked where he got it from, he said Violette had given it to him as a gift. Oh, that's horrible. So she stole a ring that belonged to her father and gave to her boyfriend. I mean, it's not, un, it's believable. It's believable. It is completely <laughs> believable. I mean, I mean, I think that there's been about 400 movies about, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. about the crazy the teenager that just becomes unhinged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the judge ordered the lawyers and defendants to return to the crime scene and walk through the events. Germain, uh, wouldn't even look at her daughter. In December, Judge uh, Lenoir finished and ruled on January 5th, 1934. The case would go to the Attorney General and she would face trial and be indicted for murder. The official uh, official trial started October 1934 in the Assize Court of the Seine, um, which we t- will talk about in another case coming up. The details of the first attempt on March 23rd and the final blow on August 21st were brought up, but never the suggestion of rape. Her biggest strike against her was the day the doctor came to court and told the story of her diagnosis of syphilis and her behavior. Uh, her parents had both been tested and they never had it. So how could she have been raped for six years, as we said? Yeah. And why is the doctor in trouble for all this, too? I mean, well, yeah, I couldn't really find out anything about the doctor other than the only thing I could find was about this case. So maybe he wasn't a doctor for very yeah. long. Yeah, maybe he was no longer a doctor after that. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't be taking care of patients. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds dangerous too. Yeah. On October 12, 1934, at 7 p.m., the jury deliberated for just one hour and returned with a unanimous guilty verdict and sentenced her to, sentenced to death um, at 19 years old. In 1934, women were no longer killed by the guillotine, but they w- um, but they would be covered in a black cloth as the charges were read and then shot. She Whoa. had enough time to file an appeal that was quickly tossed out. On December 6, her attorney reached to the president of France, Albert Lebrun, um, who overturned her death penalty in exchange for sending to sending her to a forced labor camp for the rest of her life. At the start of 1935, she left for Alsace with 14 other women, completely isolated. She couldn't have any contact with anybody. Um, but once she was there, she discovered her Catholic faith and faith and became a model prisoner. That is so... And we're not done this. We're not done yet. <laughs> In October of 1937, she took uh, back the allegations she made against her father in a letter sent to her mother 
who also then gave it to the press. So she came back and said that she never did this, which is why it kind of bothers me when I found that podcast, when that was really the narrative they pushed. Um, This wasn't like I was digging, you know, in the archives for five years to find this information. Um, The two had actually reconciled over the years and the mother and daughter were now um, doing what she could to help get her daughter's sentence shortened. Oh, this is the ultimate manipulation. Yeah. In May 1940, she was moved to a prison prison in Reims. Um, Due to her high notoriety, multiple guards surrounded her um, every time she was out. The Germans had this idea of kidnapping her because it was now 1940, and it's the start of World War II. Um, The Vichy government was uh, filling um, the president uh, with... uh, was ended up telling, you know, getting all of these people against that were because the Vichy government was like the government of France, but they were basically doing aligning with the Germans and, you know, thinking that was going to be, um, you know, the way for the France to survive the war, the war. And so they were at the time wanting to um, empty the prisons and because they were going to fill it with these fi- resistance fighters and Jews under the orders of the German officers. Um, but Violet was still stayed in jail, but she basically was uh, kept kept just to, to herself and she never got out and arose around anybody else. In 1942, now the Catholic Church reached out to Marcel uh, Philippe Petain, who was in charge of the Vichy government, and pleaded for a reduced sentence, showing how she had turned her entire life around and how she was just this lovely, wonderful young lady. <laughs> On August 6, 1942, nine years after the crime, her sentence was reduced from life to 12 years, counting the years she had already served. Well, that's pretty big. Yeah. A few weeks, weeks later, she was given a job as uh, with the prison accountant, which she would hold until her release and would change the rest of her life. Um, on February 24th, 1944, her parole was denied, but she took it in stride and stayed for another year until August 29th, 1945, when she was finally released. Oh, I can't believe she got out. I mean, if she was reformed, that seems fair. I mean, maybe, you know, she could have changed. Maybe she found the way, yeah. but I don't know. She was pretty manipulative. Yes. But we're still not done. Oh, I believe so- on november 17th now a third head of state charles de gaulle comes in he ends up helping he uh cancels her two-decade ban essentially um that was basically house arrest and then she was banned from ever returning to paris he basically wiped all of that out she now ended up changing her she used her mother's name so she went by germain instead of violette um, she was living in the 14th and she was working as accountant at a Catholic charity back in prison. The accountant counting clerk who took her under his, her, his wing, Eugene uh, Garnier was a very kind gentleman. And the two grew very, very close. He was a widow with five children and his oldest son, Pierre and Violette became quite close. Cause after she first got out and she had, she wasn't allowed to come back up to Paris. She stayed down there and he would have her over to her house all the time. And so she got to know Pierre. Um, Pierre was actually already married, uh, but he decided to divorce his wife um, and move the, to the Batillon, um, where he worked as a cook to be closer to Violette, who was living in Paris. 
On December 16, 1946, the two married in her, in her hometown in Nouvelle-sur-Loire. Her grandfather had passed away but had never forgiven her for what she did. And neither did most of the town. Uh, but now she was a changed person and her mother was there trying to convince everybody that she was fine. Um, over the years, she and her now husband purchased a hotel and a restaurant in Rouen and had five children. Her mother lived with them and helped with the grandkids. I mean, that is a pretty amazing wow. mother and has a very big power of forgiveness. Yeah. I mean, you murdered my husband <laughs> and you try to murder me twice. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, do you sit down at dinner and you like, I'll pour my own water, please. Thank you. Yeah, seriously. Wow. I don't think I'd let her eat or cook or pour me anything. That is shocking. Yeah. Um, Violet's lawyer never stopped. And in 1953, 20 years after all of this happened, he was able to get her entire conviction tossed out with the help of the testimony of her mother. That is insane. They had a very happy life until June 30th, 1961, when Pierre died in a horrific car accident. Two years later, Violette was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had surgery, with, which successfully removed it. Um, and so she ended up opening a new hotel and a restaurant um, that she would ran, ran until 1963 when her cancer returned. But this time it had metastasized and moved into her bones. On November 26, 1966, in uh, Petit Kive, she died surrounded by her mother and her children. So she never tried to murder anybody again. That nope. Thing. She became, she turned her life around and she no longer murdered anybody. Her mother died, ended up, she, her mother lived until September 5th, 1968, outliving both her daughter and her husband. That's crazy. What a life. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of. I mean, you know, she had three heads of state, basically like two presidents and the acting, whatever you want to call them, of the, you know, uh, town of the Vichy government, basically three presidents stepped in to help overturn her sentencing. I don't understand why everyone had so much mercy on her. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that, I mean, now, I don't know. I mean, you know, OJ supposedly was reformed in prison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some people are reformed, but... Oh, for sure. I mean, for, she had syphilis, too. I guess she finally did get treatment. Uh, yeah, she must have had treatment. Um, but, like, the story captivated France for years. Um, and it has been changed. It's been made into numerous movies and documentaries. And in 1977, Isabelle Hubert, who is an amazing French actress, she played the Black Angel. And you could actually find some of the clips on YouTube and I'll put them on uh, my website so you could watch them. But it is pretty, you know, it is interesting. We're going to talk about another um, woman next week. And that one's even more interesting. Um, but it is, uh, you know, you do definitely people, you know, sometimes they have a moment that maybe they're not their best self. <laughs> I blame the syphilis. Maybe it destroyed her brain. Maybe it was the syphilis because it did kind of start to make people crazy. Yeah. I mean, that was a thing. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's just kind of sad for her parents, you know, like, you know, they were just hardworking, you know, trying to, I'm sure, doing everything they could, you know, for her. And it just, she was just such a brat. None of it was good enough. So she made up lies and then to get more money, she just tried to kill him. And she had five kids of her own. That's wild. Yeah. Wonder what happened to like her. 
generations after, where are they now? What do you yeah, think? I don't know. I couldn't find anything about any of her kids. I mean, I couldn't even find a name of any of them. Crazy, weird. I mean, weird. sometimes usually, you know, when it was the case of uh, Landru, his kids, you know, all of them, all of them were, um, all of them ended up uh, being, you know, involved in his, his schemes and everything that he had going on. And then, but they all still changed their name. Yeah, I would, I would definitely change my name if I was related to any of those people. Yeah. Well, guys, make sure you tune in next week because we're going to have another true crime podcast for you. And head on over to ClaudineHemingway.com to learn more and connect with Claudine. Thanks for listening today, guys. If you're interested in learning more about Claudine, her tours, history, and the beautiful photographs that she posts all over Instagram, tune into her website, ClaudineHemingway.com.